0: Hey there, friends. I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. If you're here in the States or even if you're abroad and you celebrated Thanksgiving, wherever you are living at, me and my family had a blessed time together uh, for the Thanksgiving holidays, and it was wonderful to be together as a family. This particular episode, I'm going to do something different here on the podcast. I am going to just share with you a small section from the listener's commentary on the Book of Colossians. And if you don't know what the listener's commentary is, that's my other project where I'm just teaching straight through New Testament books. And I currently have seven New Testament books done, and there's hours and hours of free content there uh, on the Listener's Commentary. You can find it on a regular podcast player. If you just search for the Listener's Commentary, you should be able to find out that, that way. Or you can go to listenerscommentary.com, and you could find it right there. You could learn a little bit more about it. The Listener's Commentary is... Years and years worth of Bible teaching and Bible study and hours and hours of free content that I'm making available as a crowd-funded project, and it's made possible by the donations of people. And so I mentioned that at the beginning of this, this, uh, this little clip from that as part of it. Occasionally I mentioned that in the commentary, and this just happens to be one of the episodes where I mentioned that. So I wanted to give you a heads up on that. So it starts with just that little bit that I, I mentioned there. Then we jump into Colossians chapter 3. And Colossians chapter 3 is a chapter of the New Testament that would be worth your time and energy to memorize, is a chapter that is a formative and shaping for our identity in Christ. It's a chapter that calls us to live who we are. And in this uh, recording uh, from the listener's commentary, I explain and dig into the details of Colossians 3, 12 through 17. So check this out. Hey friends, it's John. I just wanted to say thanks for checking out this listener's commentary on the Book of Colossians. And wanted to remind you that this project is a crowd-funded project, which means it's made possible by the generous support of people just like you. So if you're one of those who is supporting the creation of the listener's commentary, thanks a ton for your financial support. It makes all of this possible, and if you want to help out and you want to join in and supporting this project so it can continue to grow and develop, just swing on over to thelistenerscommentary.com slash give, and you can donate right there. Thanks a ton. All right, let's jump back in then to our study of Paul's letter to the Colossians. We are in Colossians chapter 3, specifically in three twelve through 17. In the previous section... Paul began to call us to live who we are, that we have been given a new identity in Christ. That is a fact that God has done for us by virtue of the work of Jesus in our lives. So we have this new identity. Now we need to learn to live that out. And so the call is to live who you are. And so in chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, Paul really began to call us to do that. And he did so in two sections. The first section, 3, 1 through 4, called us to focus on Christ and his things, that the ambition of our life, the orientation of our life, and the focus of our life should be seeking after Christ and his things. And then in 3, 5 through 11, Paul called us to get rid of the values and practices and behaviors of the fallen world around us that used to uh, really be our identity, that used to be where we found our life, he used the imagery, particularly in the second half of that, of taking off of old clothes. That That's just not what we wear anymore. We don't do those things. We're not marked by immorality, impurity, anger, malice, and the things like that. So we take those off and set those aside because that's not who we are anymore. In this section, Colossians 3, 12 through 17, Paul continues to call us to live who we are, by telling us now what to put on. If we've taken off those old clothes and set those aside, what then do we put on? What do we wear? What what are the proper behaviors and values and practices now that are in keeping with the new life, the new humanity, the new creation that we have in Christ? That's where Paul turns to in this section. So with that, let's read what Paul has to say here in Colossians 3, verse 12 and following. He writes, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of, and then he'll list off some of the behaviors. But before we look at the behaviors or the virtues and practices of the new life in Christ, I don't want us just to fly by his kind of opening transitional sequence to those virtues. It's really important for us to pay attention to what Paul just said. Notice the beginning of verse 12. As those who have been, notice, have been, accomplished fact. Again, this is our new identity. This is who we are. And so we're not putting on these practices to try to be something we're not. We're going to put on these practices and virtues because that is who God has already made us. We're living who we are. So that's important. And then also notice here in the first part of verse 12, how Paul has described us. Those who have been chosen of God. Did you catch that? Chosen of God. We are God's chosen people. Those in Christ are God's chosen people, right? Right. just think about the value that ascribes to you as a person. Think about like what that means to be chosen. I mean, Think about those times in your life maybe where the opposite was true, where like you weren't chosen. Nobody wanted you on their team, right? Nobody wanted you in their group. You felt like an outsider. You felt left out, but not from God. God has chosen us and made us part of his people. So we are we are chosen by God, welcomed by him. So that's part of our identity. And then he also says, holy and beloved. So as God's chosen people, we are holy and beloved. And the word holy is that idea of being set apart for and belonging to. Like we have been set apart as God's chosen people. We belong to him. We are his holy people. Well, just think again of the dignity that that bestows upon us. Like you're holy. You're marked out as set apart and belonging to God as part of his holy people. And then beloved or dearly loved. It's the same word that's used of uh, Jesus where he's like God's dearly loved or beloved son, right? Like that's who we are. We are God's beloved children, God's beloved people. He loves us devotedly. And again, it's so easy to fly past these sort of transitional sequences and New Testament. But we shouldn't do that. Just We should pause and reflect on these words, chosen, holy, beloved. That, my friends, is who you are. And it's based on that position. It's based on that relationship. It's based on that identity then that Paul calls us to live differently. So as those who are chosen, holy, and beloved by God— put on a heart of compassion and so on and putting on is this idea of we are changing our clothes we're changing our virtues right we're, we're we now know who we are we're part of God's family and so we're going to learn the family ways we're going to learn the family practices we've been brought out of whatever system of life we were in before into a, a new family and we have to learn new values and new virtues according to that family's way of doing life so put on a heart of, and he lists them off. And he lists off, really, over the course of the next few verses, eight character traits of our new way of life. And again, when Paul lists off these kind of virtues, just like we noted with the vices, this isn't like completely comprehensive. There's things here that aren't in other lists, and there's things in other lists that aren't here. It's to paint a picture of the kind of person God has made us to be. And so he lists off eight virtues, eight of the kinds of traits that mark God's holy and beloved people. Let's walk down through them and just kind of define them as we go. Put on a heart of compassion. Well, compassion is this idea of like mercy, of hurting with those who hurt, who uh, a, a person who's willing and ready to help. It's this heart set that is just like you see the needs of others and you're moved to help them. Compassion. You want to help people. The next one he lists off is kindness. Kindness is almost like the opposite of malice. We saw malice in the list of vices. Well, kindness is almost like its opposite in the sense that kindness is this desire Uh, to do good to another, whereas malice wants harm for another. Kindness wants goodness and help for others. It's being big-hearted. It's wanting to see another succeed, to see another benefit from something, so you have a desire for someone else's benefit. So put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility. Humility. Well, what does humility mean? And we have to think clearly about this because I think there's been some misunderstanding about humility. And really, in the New Testament, there's two parts to humility. One is uh, the view we have of ourselves. That's one way humility is portrayed in the New Testament, that we have a view of ourselves that's realistic. It's not like beating ourselves up, it's not like thinking, uh, poorly of ourselves, or thinking badly of ourselves. Oh, I'm just so awful. Oh, I'm just so terrible. Oh, I don't deserve anything good. That is not biblical humility. Biblical humility is to think accurately of ourself, um, properly of ourselves. In fact, in Romans chapter 12, Paul says this. He says, don't let anyone think more highly of themselves than they ought to think, but think of themselves with a, a realistic estimation. That's what we should have. It's just our strengths and weaknesses, we should be honest about who we are. So that's one part of humility is a honest assessment of ourself. Part of that is recognizing that were it not for the grace of God, we'd be in a world of hurt. So part of humility is realizing, man, I am dependent on God. I need his grace uh, both to forgive me and to help me do what's right. I'm dependent on him for every good gift I have. That's part of a realistic self-assessment. So we, we have this view of self where we're, we recognize our neediness and our dependence on God. And we recognize our own weaknesses and our own strengths. That's part of humility, a proper view of self. The other part of humility in the New Testament is also a proper view of others, that we are interested in serving others, and we're interested in taking care of others and meeting their needs. And so, for example, Philippians chapter 2 tells us to be humble, have a humble mind like Jesus, Um and to do that by putting others' needs ahead of our own, not th- looking out for our own interests, but looking out for the interests of others. And so New Testament biblical humility has a proper view of self and a proper view of others in the sense that we, we have an honest estimation of ourself and we have a eagerness to serve other people. That's humility. So put on a heart of humility. So put on a heart of compassion. Kindness. Humility. The next one he lists is gentleness. Gentleness. Sometimes this word translated gentleness has been translated meekness. And, um... As we think about that again, we need to kind of think clearly. What does it mean to be gentle or meek? Well, it doesn't mean to be again weak. It doesn't mean to be this cowering little person who just never asserts themselves and never has any opinions. It doesn't have any strength. Oh, just you know, right, like, like that kind of person. What does it mean to be gentle and meek? Well, the primary idea of the word is um, that it's it's a quiet strength that is ready to give way or defer to others, and so it's not giving way because we're, we're timid and we're weak. It's a willingness to make concessions to others or to give way to others because we don't want to harm them, because we want to benefit them, because we want to help them. Sometimes this word was used outside of the human context for, say, a horse – that had been saddle trained. And now all that strength and all that kind of fury and wildness that was in the horse has now been brought under control. And so now the horse can be beneficial to its rider and to its owners. Well, that's the idea of this word gentleness. Um, Think of it in terms of, for example, uh, one of the ways I always like to think of this is when my kids were small, they always wanted to wrestle with dad. Let's wrestle, dad. Let's wrestle, dad. The problem was, I weighed about 190 pounds, and they weighed about like, you know, 35 or 40 pounds, and I could easily squish them like a bug. But that wouldn't have been fun for anybody, right? I didn't want to hurt them. And so my size and my strength had to be restrained and be brought under control so that the wrestling experience would be fun for everybody. That's biblical gentleness, is that idea of self-restraint, that idea of willingness to see something from another person's perspective and maybe even make concessions to them because of that. So it's that quiet strength that allows you to look beyond yourself to others and really see from their perspective, see what's most beneficial in the situation, and not be a bull in a china shop where you're just you know running people over and knocking things over. So gentleness, put on that too. The next one he lists is patience. Patience. I think we have a pretty good understanding of what patience means. It's the idea of being long fused, right? Like it takes a lot to make you angry. It's restraint in the face of provocation. When something is provoking you, or somebody's provoking you, or a situation is annoying and irritating and provoking you, you have the ability to be self controlled and to be restrained, and you don't get uh, angry easy. You don't lose your temper angry. You're patient, patient. So put on patience. Uh, the next one, number six, that he mentions is. Bearing with one another. Man, I love how honest and realistic Paul and the New Testament writers are with phrases like this. Bearing with one another. Remember, in the preceding section, he talked about all these different kinds of people that now they're all being brought into the new family of God in Christ from all different backgrounds Jews, Gentiles, they have different religious backgrounds, they have different racial backgrounds, different class backgrounds, different ethnic backgrounds. And that just brings Just difference, right? Like things are just different. And that can create tension. That can create misunderstanding. That can create awkward moments and hard feelings. So you have to bear with one another. You have to learn, in other words, to put up with each other, not reluctantly, but gladly with all the very attitudes he's just described above with gentleness and humility, right? And all those sorts of things. Kindness, we. Bear with one another. We put up with each other because we genuinely care for each other because we're part of this new family and we're going to learn how to live together as God's people. So bear with one another. Not only that, sometimes all that tension, all those differences leads to genuine hurting of each other, genuine misunderstanding and wrongdoing towards each other, intentional or unintentional. And so number seven that he mentions is forgiving each other. This just is another virtue, another practice that needs to mark the Christian family. Forgiving each other. Literally, again, that word forgiving here is giving grace to one another, That ought to characterize all our relationships in the family of God. We give grace to each other. We don't hold grudges. Uh, We don't hold things against each other. Like we're willing to let things go and we're willing to forgive. Notice what he says is forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone. Notice that. like. You have a beef with somebody, in other words. You have a frustration or somebody has wronged you or there's something you have misunderstood about somebody else and it really annoyed you, right? They did something. that's, And now you have a complaint. Instead of holding that against them, instead of using that against them, instead of being standoffish and therefore mm, and you're just going to kind of be cold towards them, no, you're going to give grace towards them. And you're not going to hold that against them. You're going to be willing to forgive them. Why? Because God forgave you. So you're going to practice the same sort of grace towards your new brothers and sisters in Christ that God showed you. And God had a lot bigger bone to pick with you and with me. And he forgave it. And he forgave it at great personal cost. At the cost of the incarnation and crucifixion, God paid for, and gave grace for, um, and absorbed the cost of all our wrongs. So certainly we, in turn, can give grace to and absorb the cost of whatever wrongs people have done towards us so that we can love them and be kind to them and serve them in Jesus' name. So forgiving each other. And then the eighth one he mentions here is, and put on love. The way he says it here is beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity there in verse 14. And it's a little unclear exactly how this one works. It's like above and beyond all these things or on top of all these things is the idea. Put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. First, let's just talk about love. I want to make sure we're really clear on this, that when we hear this word "love," the Greek word well known in Christian circles is agape. Uh, that's the kind of love. Here's what's fascinating about that word: is the word agape is uh, used very sparingly, almost nowhere out in, in Greek literature outside of the New Testament until after the New Testament. And so, this particular word for love was a rare word, n- not seemingly used very much by uh, the Greeks themselves. And so. I think that was intentional. It, therefore, when it comes to the New Testament and the biblical writers want to talk about God's kind of love, a, a unique, deep, um, like transcendent kind of love. Well, what word was it going to use? Well, it picked a word that didn't already have a whole lot of baggage with it because it wasn't used that often. And therefore, it could take that word and infuse it with distinctly Christian meaning, with Jesus-centered kind of love. And so agape then becomes really distinctive of God's love for us in Jesus that now we're supposed to practice towards others. So what is that love like? Well, it's a self-giving kind of love. It is a self-giving commitment. commitment to the well-being of another, even if it costs me something, even if I don't get anything out of it. That's how God has loved this world. That's how God has loved you and me. And that's now how he's calling us to love others with that same self-giving commitment to the well-being of another person regardless of what I get out of it. So, put on that kind of love. Put on that kind of self-giving commitment. And then he says, which is the perfect bond of unity. What's unclear in the Greek is, what exactly is being bound? Is it all these other virtues that are being bound together? Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, and so on. Are they being united and bound together by love, which holds them all together? That's one possibility. Or, is uh, love being described as the perfect bond of unity in the Christian family. It is the it is the ultimate thing that unites us together in the Christian family is this love that we've all experienced from God and now we're giving to each other and that's what holds us together. I think that second one is probably the better idea here is that Love is being pictured as the the perfect bond of unity within the Christian family, particularly in view of where Paul goes in verses 15 and following, where he really starts talking about corporate life together. I think that's what he has in mind. And so in our life together, love is the perfect bond of unity. And that highlights something really important about even the preceding seven uh, virtues that Paul mentioned compassion kindness humility gentleness and patience bearing with and forgiving each other notice all of those are interpersonal virtues like Um, When when the New Testament describes how we're supposed to be in Christ, it always does so in view of a community context, in, in view of a one another environment, that we do life together. And the way our new life in Christ fundamentally should be expressed is in the way we treat and interact with each other, compassion, kindness, humility, forgiving, love, together, We have a new way of doing life together. And that's what makes us a city set on a hill, to take Jesus' words, is when people see the way we live together, all of a sudden it's attractive and it's beautiful. It provides really a contrast to the way human society typically works. And so we, we put these on and it changes our interactions with one another. Now, Paul continues that thought and in verses 15 through 18. He really begins to just kind of talk about Christian life together and just a few more calls to action. As we look at verses 15 through uh, 17, pay attention to the idea of thankfulness that ends each verse. All right, as we walk down through 15 through 17, just watch for that. Okay, now, verse 15 says this, Let the peace of Christ Rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. And this is a clear call to action. In fact, let the peace of Christ rule. The verb form in Greek really is a command that is given sort of in this third person sort of way, which you just can't translate very well into English. So it's a command. The peace of Christ must rule in your hearts. That's the idea. It's this call to action. And so the very peace of Jesus, meaning the peace that Jesus created in in between people, the peace that he created by virtue of his death, burial, and resurrection, if you want to see more on that, look at Ephesians chapter 2, where it describes how Jesus brought peace between people and between people and God. And so let the peace that Jesus Uh, created rule in your hearts and that word translated rule is this is the only place it's used in the new testament it actually comes from the the realm of sports in the ancient world it's the idea of like being a referee or an umpire and so the picture is that um, in our interpersonal relationships in the body of christ in the new family of christ the thing that is supposed to really referee our relationships is supposed to be the peace that jesus created The peace that Jesus made by virtue of his dying on the cross and removing the hostility and the division and the distinctions between people. And so let the peace of Christ act as referee in your hearts to which indeed you were called. In other words, you were called to peace. You were meant to live in peace with one another. That's what Jesus' dream and desire and intent is. And so live that out. Let this peace rule, act as referee in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Christ doesn't have two, three, four, five, ten bodies. He has one body, one new family. And if you're in Christ and I'm in Christ, then we were called to learn how to live in peace with one another. So let the peace of Christ rule there in one body and be thankful. Be thankful. Be thankful for what God has done for you. Be thankful that you're part of this new family. Be thankful for the work of Christ in your life. Be thankful. Be thankful. Verse 16, next call to action, he says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. And so let the peace of Christ rule in your relationships and let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. The word of Christ here could be the word about Jesus or the word that comes from Jesus. It's probably the former, the word about Jesus, the message about Jesus. In fact, the word translated word is not logos, a familiar word for word. It's rhema, which usually refers to the spoken word, the declared word, the proclaimed word. And so it's the idea of the message about Jesus. um, The message about his work, about who he is, about what he accomplished on the cross, the gospel message about Jesus, let that dwell richly within you um, within you individually or within you corporately. And since we're focused sort of on the a kind of a corporate context here and that becomes even uh, clear in the second half of verse 16, probably that latter one, like let the word of Christ dwell richly, among you as God's people, among your whole church family. And in fact, he goes on, he says, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. Notice that we're talking about one another. And so we're supposed to be sharing the message about Jesus. We're supposed to be teaching each other the message about Jesus. We're supposed to be admonishing, which means challenging and warning one another based on the message of Jesus. And so let the message about Jesus dwell among your, your church there in Colossae or among your church, in my case, in Boise or your church there in. London or your church there in uh, Manila or wherever wherever it's at, let the message about Jesus dwell richly within your, your congregation, showing up with all wisdom, teaching one another and admonishing one another. So one of the ways the message about Jesus is supposed to show up or dwell among us is in wise teaching and admonishing of each other. Another way it's supposed to show up here is with all psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs singing. And so, another way we can let the word of Jesus and the message about Jesus dwell richly among us is through singing and singing psalms, which refers to the book of Psalms, those poems in the Old Testament. Hymns are distinctly Christian songs that declare about Jesus, and spiritual songs, songs that seem to be prompted and inspired by the very Spirit of God at work within us. And so, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing. uh, as a body. And so singing actually is a, a important and almost distinctive Christian thing. There's very few groups in modern uh, the modern world where they sing together, but Christians do. And we're instructed here to do that as a way of letting the message about Jesus dwell among us. And notice he says, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And so again, we have that thankfulness, singing as an expression of our gratitude to God for what he's done for us in and through Jesus and the work that he's accomplished that way. And now we turn to verse 17, which really seems to be like a general catch-all statement for everything Paul has had to say. In this section, he says, and whatever you do, notice how broad that is, whatever you do, whether it's explicitly, you know, commanded in scripture or not, whatever you do in every facet of life, in your parenting, in your job, in uh, your driving, in whatever you do, in your relationships with other people, in every facet of your life, whatever you do in word, in the things you say, and in deed, in the things you do, whatever you do in in all of your life, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. What does that mean, to do something in the name of the Lord Jesus? Well, it means to do it as his representative. Um, The name represents the person in, in Paul's thinking. That's the way it worked in the The ancient world was the name of somebody represented their personhood and their authority. And so you do to do something in the name of somebody is to do it as a representative of them, to do it under their authority and on their behalf. So whatever you do in life, whatever you do in life, do it all as a representative of Jesus Christ, of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And again, we end with gratitude, we end with thanksgiving, because our life is to be an expression of thanksgiving because of everything God has done for us. And so when you think about how really broad that is, whatever you do in life, do it as a representative of Jesus and do it under his authority. And when you think about that, there's really like three questions that I think we can ask to help us think through Well, am I doing this as a good representative of Jesus? One question is this, can I do this and not compromise my Christian profession? Can I do this and not compromise my Christian testimony and witness? Second question is, can I do this and not drag the name of Jesus through the mud? Can I do this and not make Jesus look bad? And then in view of thanksgiving, can I do this and thank God for the opportunity to do it? Can I do this and thank God for the opportunity to do it? If we are constantly asking ourselves those kinds of questions, man, that'll help us do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. So here in chapter three, in contrast to what the those false ideas that are swirling around the church there in Colossae, right, they're being Tempted and threatened with ritualistic religion, where it makes rules that are measurable and external and really, really clear-cut, so that you have a measuring stick of who's really spiritual and who's not. That's what's kind of swirling around them. We saw that at the end of chapter two. Well, in contrast to that, what Paul has instructed here in chapter three is, you guys make make sure your focus is on Jesus and it, on His things, and then you live that out in your daily life. You figure that out in your daily life. And so you live out who you are because your mind and your heart is set on Jesus. And so think about his things. Seek after his things. And that may mean there's some things you have to put to death. There's some things you have to get rid of. That that also means there's going to be some new things that you're going to have to put on. You're going to have to take on some new virtues. But they're not so much the measuring stick. Christ's likeness is the measuring stick. So we don't have all these clear-cut little e- external things like you need to fast here and you need to do that there and you got to do your devotions there and you got to uh, be at church this many times there and you, you don't eat meat hit here and you don't do all that. All those things can be means. They can be means of becoming like Jesus, but the end is becoming like Jesus and our heart and our soul is set on Him and our goal is to live together as the new people of God formed in Christ with the very character of Christ really radiating out in the way we treat each other, and the way we live together as his people. And so instead of having some clearly defined external code, like the the false teachers seem to have been saying there in Colossae, we focus on Christ, we pursue him, and then we begin to imitate him in our life together. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Bible Life Podcast, where we like to give blue jeans theology, that is theology that is rooted in everyday life so you can follow Jesus in everyday life. Thanks to those of you who support and who pray for this ministry. You make this possible. So thanks a ton. God bless you guys. I look forward to talking again next week.